I bet you've heard um, people, often famous people, say a couple of things in common. One, that they've been extremely lucky. And two, that after they've found their special niche, they've never worked another day in their life. Meaning that even though they do do a job as such and they turn up and they put the hours in, they love it so much that it doesn't feel like the notion of work as a chore. We're talking to a man today who believes very firmly in this. His name is Sir Ken Robinson. Um, he uh, lives and breathes creativity and innovation. And he says that all of us have more potential than we realise or act on and that we can, in fact, find our way to our passion so that it's the fuel for a very large part of our life. He's written about this in a new book uh, with Lou Aronica. It's called The Element, How Finding Your Passion Changes Everything. Sir Ken Robinson, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be here. Um, I'd like to start with a question that you apparently often ask people you uh, are speaking to or work with, and you ask them, how intelligent are you? I want to know what they say. Well, I, I ask whole audiences this. You know, I give them a scale of 1 to 10 uh, and ask them two questions. The first is how creative do they think they are? And the second is how intelligent do they think they are? And ask them just to vote on a scale of 1 to 10 with 10 at the top. And what always interests me is on the creativity question, very, very few people give themselves 9 or 10. Mostly people give themselves 6 or 7. Uh, and on intelligence, again, very few people would give themselves 10. And most people give themselves sort of 5 or 6, something like that. But the real point about the question is that I think um, people have very different ideas about what intelligence is and what creativity is. I also ask them if they give themselves different marks. And it's... It's amazing to me that often most of the room will give themselves different marks. And I think it's because they think intelligence and creativity are unrelated. And a lot of my work is about persuading people that we're all highly creative, uh, potentially, and that we all underestimate our intelligence and that these two things are connected. So is it the definition of intelligence that's kind of the important thing here and how it gets defined and taught to us early on? I think it's a big factor. You know, we've, we've, we grow up in systems which keep telling us that intelligence is the same thing as IQ or uh, the kind of academic ability that gets commonly tested for in, in school exams. And, you know, while those things have something to them, uh, what I really want to argue is that intelligence is much, much more than is represented on a conventional IQ test. You know, that intelligence is very rich, very diverse, uh, that we all have enormous intellectual possibilities. And a much better question than saying, how intelligent are you, is to ask, how are you intelligent? You know, how does it show itself in you? I know people who are brilliant in one area, not so much in another, you know, great in some things, less enthusiastic in other areas. It's a, it's a profile of abilities that we should be looking for rather than having a single measure. And that single measure that you referred to, the IQ test, from what you say in the book, it wasn't actually designed for how it's being implemented today as this kind of one-size-fits-all test of exactly what you said, how intelligent you are. And, you know, Gerald, the other thing is that this isn't uh, just a kind of abstract theoretical argument. I, I know people who have taken IQ tests. They probably didn't even know they'd taken them. A lot of the what used to be called the 11 plus exams, you know, those exams that people have to decide which school they go to uh, at, at, uh, when they leave primary school, were really just IQ tests. And particularly in a selective system, most people are destined not to pass because selective systems only want a few people to get through the gate. And I know so many adults, you know, often brilliant in their own ways, who have done very interesting things with their lives, 
who still think they're not very intelligent because they may have failed that exam mm -hmm. at an earlier point in their lives. And I think the reason is that people have been misled into feeling that an IQ test is like a blood test. You know, that if you, yeah. this just tells you how intelligent you are. And actually, they're nothing of the sort. You know, these are just tests that were developed a long time ago on a particular view of intelligence. And they're, they're a very poor indicator, in my experience, of the great breadth of what people are really capable of achieving. And yet, as you say, so much at stake. You mention in the book that um, people in America, I think you say in the 30s, were actually confined to mental institutions on the basis of IQ tests. Oh, yeah. And sometimes, you know, it's a, it was literally a matter of life and death. There was a, a case in point a few years ago um, of a guy who was implicated in a murder in an armed robbery. And they gave an IQ test and they determined that because his IQ was below a certain threshold, that he wasn't, as it were, intelligent enough to be responsible for his own actions and therefore they couldn't give him the death sentence. Uh, ten years later, he'd been taking educational programs in the prison and they gave him another IQ test and his IQ score had, had improved to the point <laughs> where he now was intelligent enough to be executed. So, <laughs> so uh I mean, he ought to have been bright enough to try to fail the test deliberately, really. <laughs> um, you know, but, but the, the, you know, I mean, people used to be allocated to positions in the military based on IQ tests. And, and, you know, according to how they did in the test, they'd be sent in one direction or the other. So what you're saying so, is we have this horribly narrow and unrealistic view of what intelligence is. And you said the better question to ask is, how are you intelligent? So what do you mean by that? I mean that intelligence is, is wonderfully rich and diverse. You know, we think in all kinds of ways. We think visually, we think in images, we think in sound, we think in movement, uh, you know, we think in words and, and, and we think in numbers. You know, to me, it would be a bit like uh, looking at the whole extraordinary world of athletics and judging everyone according to their ability to play basketball. You know what I mean? And say, mm, well, you know, mm. the, we know there are other sorts of athletics, you know, but really it's basketball that's the really good stuff. And, and if, you can't, if you're not good at basketball, well, you can do remedial programs in <laughs> soccer and cricket. You know, I, I and always, I, I, sorry, it on. reminds me of that Gary Larson cartoon, you know, School for the Gifted, and there's a push-pull thing on the door, and, and the gifted person who's going in is pushing on the pull door. You know, you can be really good <laughs> on other things and spatially challenged. Um, so you're saying there's lots of different types of intelligence. I wonder if you might tell the story that illustrates this so well of the dancer Gillian Lynn well when she was a little girl yes you know Gillian uh, is uh, I think a wonderful woman I, I met her years ago I used to be involved in Britain with the Royal Ballet I was on the board there for a while and you know I'm very passionate about about giving people opportunities across the whole range in education and most schools don't teach dance you know and you think well you know it's the fact that People think it's okay that we don't teach dance, which is so interesting to me, you know, because we all have bodies, I think. Um, anyway, <laughs> I, I, I was talking to Gillian one day over lunch, and I say, no, most people have never heard of Gillian. I'm sure most people listening to this won't have heard of her, but I'll bet everybody listening to this knows the work she does. She was the person responsible for the choreography in Cats and Phantom of the Opera. Right. So I, I met Gillian. She's in her 70s now. She's a wonderful, wonderful woman. And I, I had lunch with her, and I said, how did you get to be a dancer? And she said, you know, it nearly didn't happen that when she was at school in the 30s in England, she said she was a very you know, a bad student in a way in primary school. She was always fidgeting and staring out the window and wanting to get up and wander around. And I was saying in the book, I think now they'd say she had attention deficit disorder and, and put her on medication. But at the time, you know, nobody had thought there was such a condition. So and I still think it's wildly exaggerated, by the way, but we might come back to that in a minute. But uh, she said that the school thought she had a learning 
difficulty, and, and they wrote to her mother and said, we think that Gillian might be better suited uh, in a school f for children with special needs. Well, you know, her mother was mortified, and so is Gillian, but they arranged for her to have an assessment. And they said that, Gillian told me, they went along to see this man, who I guess was a psychologist, and she said she still remembers walking into this oak-panelled room with these leather-bound books and this large oak desk, and you know, he greeted her and, and sat Gillian down at the far end of the room on this leather sofa and went back to his desk and, and started to talk to her mother. And she said for about 20 minutes, they talked about Gillian and the problems she seemed to be having and the problems she was causing. And, and all the time that they were talking, she said, this man was staring at her. And she said, of course, she was mortified with embarrassment. She said, I was sitting on the sofa, you know, sitting on my hands so I wouldn't fidget. And at the end of it, he came and sat next to her and held her hand, and he said, you know, Gillian, you've been really patient, and I'm thankful for that, but you need to be patient a few minutes longer because I need to speak to your mother privately. So we're going to go out of the room and leave you here by yourself, but we won't be long, we'll just be a few minutes, and we'll come back for you. She said, okay. So she said, with that, they got up and left the room and left her on her own. But as they were going out the room, he turned the radio on that was sitting on his desk. And she said, apparently, when they got into the corridor, he turned to her mother and said, just stand here for a minute and watch her and see what she does. She said, you know, there was a window back into the room and they stood where she couldn't, where they couldn't, she couldn't see them. Anyway, she said, after, uh, the minute they were out of the room, she was on her feet, moving to the music all around the room. And she said, apparently they watched her for a few minutes. And then this doctor turned to her mother and he said, you know, Mrs. Lynn, Gillian isn't sick. She's a dancer. <laughs> take her to a dance school I said what happened Gillian she said she did and he said I can't tell you how wonderful it felt I walked into this room and it was full of people like me she said people who couldn't sit still people who had to move to think I think that's really important have mm. to move mm. to think well she went on she was auditioned eventually for the Royal Ballet School she joined the Royal Ballet she became a soloist she traveled the world with them had a wonderful career when she left them she formed her own company the Gillian Lynn Dance Company she had productions on Broadway and on the West End of London. She met Andrew Lloyd Webber eventually, and with him, she became responsible for some of the most successful musical theatre productions in history. She's given pleasure to millions. And all of that and because she's a multimillionaire. Somebody, and somebody recognised her special kind of intelligence. A, a different, well, yes, I mean, somebody, different, else, somebody uh, it, else might have put her on medication, you know, and told her to calm down. Actually, um, we just had an SMS from um, a listener called Brenton who said he believes that Einstein is another with a low IQ. Do you know that to be the case? No, I don't know that to be the case. But um, I think generally, I mean, I'd be interested to know more about that. But I think that it, I, I know it's true that Einstein didn't score especially well on IQ tests. People get rather inflated about these IQ tests. You know, I mean, they, you know, you can do better on these tests if you practice, like learning to drive a car. Um, but in any case, you know, Einstein is held up, you know, as one of the leading intellectual figures of recent history. And of course he was. But I don't know how good he'd be if we gave him the lead part in Swan Lake, <laughs> you know, uh, or, if we, or if we asked him to compose a symphony. And that's my point, really, that, you know, we have these iconic images of intelligence, but we ought to include other things in here, like the, the extraordinary achievements people have in sport, the extraordinary achievements people have in music, in business and so on. These are all examples of the extraordinary diversity of intelligence.
It's 19 minutes after 11 and you're listening to Sir Ken Robinson uh, who's written this book called The Element, How Finding Your Passion Changes Everything. Co-written it, I should say, with Lou Aronica. Um, uh, Rosemary, um, one of the producers, has just written on the screen that Einstein never took an IQ test according to Google. But just moving away from that for a moment, I mean, we're talking about, you know, finding, acknowledging um, the different types of intelligence. What about people finding their way then through to that passion very wonderful that Gillian had a very smart, you know, a person in her early life kind of intervene and flag this. But lots of people don't and they struggle their way through a school system that doesn't take any of this into account. Tell us the perhaps a few examples of people who've, who've found their way and, and maybe some of the common features. Well, I'll give you a couple of quick examples here. Um, one is quite recently, which, is, which isn't in the book. I actually... I was doing a book signing in San Francisco a few weeks ago, and uh, the guy I was, speak I was speaking to was signing a book. He was in his 30s, and I asked him uh, what he did for a living, and he said he was a fireman. This is in Northern California. And I said, when did you decide to be a fireman? He said, I always wanted to be a fireman. He said, what was interesting to me, because I'd given a talk about some of these things beforehand, he said that uh, when I was at school, nobody took me seriously when I said I wanted to be a fireman. He said, you know, one of the problems was that at school, everyone wanted to be a fireman, you know, but... He said, but I actually wanted to be a fireman. And I had this throughout my whole time at school. He said, but when I got into the senior years at high school, um, I had one teacher who just wouldn't take me seriously. He said, you know, at the time, everyone was applying to go to university. And I was applying to the fire service. And this guy, he said, he humiliated me one day in the classroom. He said, I would never write to anything if that's all I wanted to do with my life, that I was being stupid. And he said, anyway, you know, I, I felt awful, but I persisted. And he said, I'd, I'd forgotten about it. He said, it's just that listening to your talk reminded me that uh, six months ago, I saved this teacher's life. <laughs> he said he was, oh. in a car, he was in a car wreck and I pulled him out and I, sa I gave him CPR and saved his life. And he said, and I saved his wife's life. Uh, he said, uh, I think he thinks better of me now. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you know. Part of this book is, is looking at what it's like to be in your element, you know, and, and what you talk about being in the zone or whatever phrase you want to use, but where yeah. it all comes together, where you found your passion. But it's not just a matter of finding your passion. There, you know, there's a lot of hard work involved, isn't there? And I'm wondering if, you know, amongst the, the people that you've talked to, you see um, how they've been able to put it all together and keep it going. Well, yes, you know, I interviewed lots of people. I, I, I talked again with Gillian, but there are lots of people, I think, people that you would find interesting in the book. Uh, you know, Matt, some famous, Matt Groening, some not. the creator of The Simpsons, I found fascinating. Yeah, he's a great man. Uh, he's, uh, Matt spent most of his time at school doodling, you know, on, on his <laughs> textbooks. And Matt Groening, would you stop drawing while yeah, I'm you, talking? Yeah, will you knock that off, you know, <laughs> just knuckle down here, boy. And... You know, but he, he never thought he'd make a living from it, you know, but he, he did when he left. He met, this is a big piece of it, you know, he met some other people at school who shared his passion for cartooning. And I have a chapter in the book, uh, which is it's about what I call finding your tribe, finding other people who share the same interests and passions as you do. is really very, very important for giving you the confidence to move forward. And uh, he, he moved to Los Angeles. He started a little cartoon strip and somebody noticed it and asked him, uh, if he'd be interested to do something on the Tracy Ullman show. And he said he remembers he walked into the room, never having thought much about it, but knowing he had to come up with a new idea, but not knowing what it was going to be as he walked into the room to meet the producer of the show. 
And as he sat down and they said, what are you going to do? He said, I thought, I thought I'd do a cartoon strip about a family called the Simpsons. <laughs> and, <it went> for <laughs> and, <he's, laughs> and that's where the whole thing began. Ken, so, uh, yeah, sorry, uh, just yes, sorry to ahead. interrupt you there. I know that we've literally got sort of about a minute and a half left. And I mm-hmm. wondered if it would be possible just to go through like a quick laundry list in terms of helping your kids find their passion and the things you can do to promote that. Well, being in your element is two things. One is doing something that you have a natural aptitude for. And we all have very different aptitudes for different things. So for your own kids, and I think for yourself, it's about paying attention to what they're naturally drawn to doing. And kids are drawn to very different things. You know, Matt to doodling. I interviewed a guy called Bart Connor, who is an athlete, a gymnast, who is always standing on his hands. Watch what they do. And the second thing about being in your element is not just being good at something, but having a passion for it. Look at where their enthusiasms take them. What is it that draws them? And by the way, do this for yourself. You know, it doesn't matter how old you are. It's not too late to pursue the things that really define how you would like to live your life, the things that make you feel most authentic. So much to talk about. I wish we could have you for longer, but you have to go. Thank you very much for coming onto the program. It's a great pleasure. Thank you for having me. So Ken Robinson, who co-wrote the book The Element with Lou Aronica. Sue says, my son is like that. He's very bright, but he needs to walk up and down to think. Other people think there's something wrong with him, and it's just he's got a different type of intelligence, obviously. Cynthia's on the line. Hello, Cynthia. Oh, hi. Good morning, Geraldine. Yes, um, I, I was really interested listening to um, Ken because I've, I've done a lot of reading on Gardner's multiple intelligences, and which is about 20 years old now, the yeah, theory. Yeah, and it's, it's mentioned amongst other theories in this book too. Yeah, sure. But um, I, I was interested just because I, we really, in, in IQ tests, we tend to measure, measure logical intelligence. And and as an ex-dancer and, and theatre practitioner, I think my spatial and kinesthetic intelligence is really um, well developed. But when I went for um, a job as a drug rep for a pharmaceutical company, they were measuring not just our logical intelligence, but also our interpersonal intelligence. So um, when you're selling drugs to doctors, it it needs to be very well developed. And um, they're very aware of of, um, how their reps present. And certainly also the doctors are then also... um, I suppose, groups according to the way that they would need to be um, sold drugs too. You know, they, they, they are compartmentalised as well. So um, we're using lots of different types of intelligence when we do a sales call um, uh, <clears throat> in that environment. Just going back to your dancing, is that mm. where you are in your element? It is now, definitely, yeah, because I took a break from the arts completely and now I go back, I'm teaching musical theatre and I teach it in a different way to what we probably would in a, in a normal studio environment and I teach it according to the strengths of the students and also working on their individual weaknesses as well. So looking at, at you know, and certainly communicating with, with children differently according to um, the way that they think, yeah, yeah, and... and Fascinating. Lovely to talk with you, Cynthia. Thanks Thanks for that. Thanks very much.